First of all, we've got th three hours, and it's going to go fast. And I've got a fair amount I want to try and cover. Obviously, every one of you very different in terms of your experience and what you're doing. But I'm sure you picked it up. All of you, to some extent, are here for the same reasons. You want to find a way to restore passion and purpose and performance back into your, into your lives. Now, that's a journey. And in the three hours that we've got today, we're not going to complete that journey. It took you a while to get into the situation you're in. It's going to take you a wee while to get yourselves back out. So I don't want to promise we can finish that journey this morning. But, but what we can do, I think, is get you started. We can get you thinking right. We're going to challenge some of the beliefs that you have, because some of what's preventing some of you, not all of you, some of what's uh, what is preventing some of you from taking the steps that you want to take and finding the power and the passion and the performance that you want in your life is because of what you believe. Now, some of it's because of what you're doing, but some of it's because of what you believe. So we're going to challenge some of your beliefs, hopefully help you to act right as well, and so begin the journey. But every journey begins, and this one begins, with an arrow that says you are here. So let's just start there, shall we, and just look a little bit at, at where you are now, if that's all right. Where you are now. How many of you have siblings? OK, I want you to think back, if you would, to your brother and your sister. Just get them in mind, all their personality quirks and their traits and their behaviors and weirdnesses. OK, isn't it, isn't it odd how different they are from you? Growing up, I had a brother and a sister. I had my elder brother, Neil, younger sister, Pippa. And I was just from the very earliest moments that I could remember remembering anything at all. I can remember thinking how weird it was. Same mom, same dad, same household, and yet really different. They were very musical, for example. My brother played the piano, my sister danced, whereas I seemed to have my musical gene surgically removed at birth. <laughs> there was an unfortunate incident with a flugelhorn, but other than that, I didn't touch it. I was slightly more athletic than my brother was, which annoyed him because he was elder. My sister was more athletic than us both. And she actually took her musical ability and her athleticism and became a dancer for 20 years. So some of the differences were obvious, but some of them were more subtle, right? Just I'm sure with your brother and sister or your cousins, the people you grew up with, differences in terms of how patient you were or how persistent or how funny or how well they made friends or how reliable they were. And I never really felt I wanted to be them. I figured out really quickly where I had some strengths and where I had some weaknesses. And I just always felt as though I would live my life not to try and become them, but according to this idea, that I would probably try to find out what my strengths are and build on them, and probably try to find out what my weaknesses are and make them irrelevant in some way. And I bet all of you feel maybe you wouldn't have expressed it quite that way. But if you think about your own approach to life, I bet you've probably always had something akin to that as you've thought about your life, right? But if you are, by the way, if you do think that, you would be in a minority in this country and around the world. If you ask Americans that question, which do you think will help you achieve the greatest success and fulfillment in life, building on your strengths or fixing your weaknesses? Four out of 10 Americans believe that. In Britain, three out of 10 of us believe that. In Canada, three out of 10 of us believe that. France, three out of 10. Japan and China, two out of 10. People would bet their career, their fulfillment, their everything on leveraging their strengths. So if you look at that and you go, yeah, build on my strengths, manage around my weaknesses, just remember, you're in a minority around, around the world. So if you look around, we've got a whole world that's fascinated by weakness and tends to take strengths for granted in general. And you can see it everywhere. To learn about health, we study disease. To learn about joy and meaning and fulfillment in life, we study depression. There are 40,000 clinical studies on depression and less than 400 on joy. Doesn't mean you shouldn't study depression, 
The point, I suppose, is, though, that studying depression tells you nothing about joy. Everywhere you look, we seem to think that good, just the opposite of bad. If you want to get good, study bad and invert it. We're wrong. You study bad and invert it, you get not bad. And that's just different than good. Everywhere you look, we seem to have got our focus off. We focus on our weaknesses more than our strengths. We focus on what's wrong more than on what's right. But if you really wanted to know if you were living a strengths-based life or whether you were living a remedial life, you wouldn't just ask what you believe. You'd ask what you do. You might ask this question. What percentage of a typical day do you spend playing to your strengths? All of you think you have unique qualities and, and strengths and passions that you bring to the world, right? I mean, I know, I know you do. You wrote about them. So what percentage of a typical regular day do you spend playing to those things? This is the percentage of people who say most of the time. Ready? All right, this is 05, this is 06, and this is 07. Yeah, oh dear. I mean, I don't know what you would have guessed. I would have guessed it to be much higher. I'm not saying 80% of people, but, but we're, now at, we're now at 12% of people go to work every day, live, get up every day, and feel as though the best of themselves is called upon every day. I'm not saying the only place in which you get to express yourself at work is at work, but there's 40 or 50, 60 hours a week where your uniqueness could be expressed. Your power, your passion could be seen by everybody. And, and, and only 12% of us get to express that. I think, that's a, I think that's a tragedy. Now, there's maybe some of you going, well, wait a minute, come on. I live, in a, I live in the real world. I don't live in strengthy world. I live in a world where I've got to do a bunch of stuff in my life that I don't care to do. There's a bunch of non-negotiables in my life, my job, my uh, existence that I, I don't enjoy. And I'm never going to be able to get rid of them. All right, I'll give you that. I'll give you 25% of every single day that you can fill with all those things you don't like doing. I'll give you from 8 to 11, just the very time that we have together, every single day, to fill with the emails you don't want to write, or the report you don't want to go through, or the annoying customer you don't want to call, or the presentation you don't want to make, or the grumpy guy down the hall who daily insists on barging into your office and unloading his negativity all over your desk. Oh, come in, Brian. Come on. All right, what's wrong today? All right. I'll give you 25% every day to fill with that. Well, you can see where I'm going with this, that, that still leaves you vast stretches of time that you, in your life that you could deliberately fill with some stuff, some activities that seem to play to the best of you. And only 12% of us have managed to. Here's your data. Because we asked this question of you before you came, didn't we? What percentage of a typical day do you spend playing to your strengths? Here's your data. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody does. OK, let's just hear from you a little bit. What does that feel like? Um, Beth, tell us how you got in the situation that you're in. Tell us when you took the job, what were you thinking, and tell us how you're thinking now. Um, I took the job. Um, I was working as a recreation therapist, um, working with juvenile delinquent boys. It was a very stressful job. Um, I was a single parent. I had two children at home. and. I was dating a wonderful man that was struggling in his business, and it became, it seemed like a good idea at the time to accept the position of managing his office. We were just dating. It was, a, well, this is either going to make the relationship or break it. All right. Um, I wanted to spend more time with my children. All right. I, you know, I knew I needed more time to do that. 
and there are this, a lot of good reasons this why you took that job. allowed me to do that. You chatted about it, and you thought about it, and you went, you know what, I don't want to be here, I want to be here. Yes. And you felt good about that decision? I, I did. Okay. Then what happened? Because we got 0% right um, here. The, so. bus the business grew, um, and my responsibilities grew, and I became financially responsible for the well-being of 10 families. My family and our employees' families, and I suck at finances. <laughs> it really was my weakness. And my husband often brags to my family, who knows that finances are my weakness because they've had to bail me out a few times in my life, um, that he took my weak weakest area and made it my number one responsibility. Genius. Which at the time... <laughs> like a good idea. Did it? When did that sound like a good idea? <laughs> well, because, you know, we're, we're taught that we really need to work on our weaknesses. We need to improve our weaknesses. Yeah. So I improved it, but I'm scared to death of it. Rachel, can you tell us how you got to be here, as it were? <laughs> when you wanted to be a teacher, you, I imagine you made a conscious rather like that. You made a choice to dive into the teaching profession. Can you tell us why you made that choice, and can you kind of describe how, what, what happened? I've been teaching for eight years, right. and the stress of my job in an elementary setting has escalated to nothing I had ever imagined originally when I began my path in this occupation. How did it start? Why did you start on this path? Um, well, I, I want, I've always, from, since I was little, I've always wanted to teach. You know, I have a younger brother, and you know, I'd always, you know, make him play school with me and things like that. Really? Absolutely. And when I was given that opportunity to teach first grade, I was just infatuated with everything that, you know, surrounded that. And, How long did that last for you? Um, I would say the first four years were were amazing. Pretty and, good. And um, once things started changing um, politically, as well as we know. Um, it's just, it became frustrating. I got bogged down with a lot of responsibilities that I just didn't think aligned with teaching. And now um, I'm to the point in my career where I'm not enjoying being in a classroom. And I wanna, I wanna feel that again. All right. Stacy, why, why did why'd you become a doctor? I really, um enjoy working with people and I wanted a position that I could serve uh, others. And I also, in, in respect to my, my specialty, I, I like the kind of the dynamic, interesting nature of cardiology, and, which is why I decided to go that route. Um, you kind of, when, I, when I started medical school, you, you kind of go into things naive, thinking, oh, I'm just going to help people and everything is going to be great. I love taking care of patients, but Sometimes I feel like it's just a, a business now, the way medicine is run, and there's just not time to, to, to spend teaching patients about their conditions. There's just, there's too much going on, and sometimes I just feel like I just have to react to what's going on around me, and instead of really enjoying what I do and spending time reading about um, what I need to know. Chris, why did you take, when you took your role, why did you first why did you first take the role that you chose? And then how, describe a little bit like Rachel and Stacey, and how, how did you get to a point where you couldn't say stuff? Yeah, I mean, I started kind of the same way. I took my first marketing class as a sophomore in college. And it was like marketing? Yeah, I majored in it, 
went that route, went to business school, always wanting to be a brand manager, and I've done that now for eight years. And so the most recent position I took, again, it was something I thought about for a few years. They offered it to me and moved out to Chicago with the same company that I've been with for a while, but it was a transfer position. So um, there are pieces of it that are definitely my strengths that I get really excited about that I really like, but it's the structure of the role is not playing to my strengths. So it's the structure a, of the role. The structure of the role. So there are pieces of it every day that are great, but then in terms of how we're set up and what I actually have to do every day, not necessarily the best fit. So I'm trying to figure out how do I make how do I make it a better fit or right. take what I know to work a little bit better, or is it that I need something new? I'm not really sure. Okay, one um, Alexis. Why, why did you become a vet? Um, initially, just loved the love of being around animals, but then it, it went more forward from that and that I ended up working in undergrad with a mentor who was a surgeon and realized there was a lot more in veterinary medicine than just vaccines and wellness care. Right. Um, and so I really do have a passion for it. I mean, I, I started my first kennel assistant job as at 15, and so I've been in veterinary medicine in some degree for quite a while. Um, I really do have a passion for my career, and I love it, but it's become such a struggle to get to keep that passion in right. terms of making it more of a job and dealing with the challenges and the, what they don't teach you in veterinary school, which is the struggle of dealing with medical clients and the finances and, and the non-medical and the management of a very large department. I don't know whether you see a pattern here, but what's interesting to me anyway, none of you are here because you aren't good at what you do. Most of you have got yourself in the situations that you're into because you've been successful, because you've been good. And, and as, as you think about just one of the general takeaways from this morning, remember one of the biggest challenges of life is that when you go back and you are successful and you're driven and you're smart and you work hard, people will offer you Opportunity after opportunity, door after door opens for you. Many of you are responsible. So you keep putting up your darn hand and more people keep giving you more stuff, husband or colleague or whatever. And door after door opens. And some of those doors enable you to continue to do what you're passionate about, what strengthens you. Others won't. But the only person who's gonna stay clear-headed enough to figure out which doors to march through and which doors to slam shut is you. Which bridges to cross and which bridges to blow up. And, and in, in general, in life, I think so many of us, we just kind of blithely march on, sticking our hand up, taking initiative, and we get ourselves into a place where nobody can say this, not because we aren't good, but because we are, and people keep giving us more opportunity and responsibility. In general, I, again, I don't know whether you picked up on this when you just were listening to some of the folks that were talking, but there's a pattern that you can pick up as people go from engaged at work, Beth going, I'm gonna go work with you, honey, and it's gonna be great. Okay, so I'm suck at finances, but okay, I'm gonna work with you and it'll be awesome. There's a pattern, you look at your job through three lenses, you ask yourself three questions. This applies to now, and it applies to when you're looking, Nicole, for a new job or a new role. You ask, why is this job important to me? You ask, who am I gonna be working with? And you ask, what am I actually gonna be doing? Who, sorry, why, who, and what? But what's weird is you join because of the why, you stay because of the who, and you quit, either physically or psychologically, because the what gets off track. You joined because the why, well, why is this important? I want to work with my hubby, and I, it's going to be awesome. But over time, you become disengaged, disempowered, because your job is filled up with a bunch of activities 
that you don't enjoy, that don't invigorate you. Same with you. You join because you, because the why, I want to be a vet because I like saving animals. And now over time, the what has gone wrong. The what has kind of gone wrong for you too is, yeah, I want to save people. But gradually your job builds and the what becomes filled with a whole bunch of activities that don't invigorate. Same with you. And when the what goes wrong, it starts to infect the who and the why. You start blaming the who. There's some blaming going on, guys. There's some finger, I'm, I'm, I'm disengaged, but it's... And so you start pointing to the, to the who's you work with, right? Oh, it's them, it's, they're not appreciating me, they don't understand me. Or they're, they're all male and they don't understand me. And, and I'm not saying that that's not true, but there's a, there's a fair amount of that that happens. But it's not necessarily the who's fault. It might be that you've just filled your whole life up with a bunch of stuff that gradually has, has just dragged you off course. And not only do you start blaming the who, you start questioning the why. You start going, maybe I shouldn't be a teacher. Maybe I shouldn't be a doctor. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe some of you join your job because of the money. That was the why. I joined because of the money. And then you start going, well, the money isn't enough. It's weird to me that the person who makes the second most in this room is the person where when we ask them, what do you hate about your job, listed that I don't make enough money. It's weird. There's, there's a couple of you that make a lot of money. And, and the person that makes the second most goes, I, I don't make enough. So it, it, it's weird. When the what goes wrong, everything gets tainted. Everything gets tainted. And what's happened with many of you, I'm not saying all of you, but what's happened with many of you is gradually the activities that fill your week, your day, your life have gotten you off track. So whether you're thinking about how to find meaning and passion in your current work or whether you're thinking about taking a leap and going into a new job, don't ask the why question. Ask the what question. What invigorates me? What drains me? And then deliberately, Beth, seek out active work that plays to the activities that strengthen you. So that the next time, and some of you who are considering moving into another role, listen to Beth. If we'd held this seminar, this workshop, three, three years ago, Beth would have been in here again. Beth would have been here three years ago. So don't get yourself in the same situation. Sorry, Beth, to That's use okay. exhibit A. <laughs> but don't get yourself in the same situation as Beth. Don't make the same mistake again. You've got to be a, find a way to take control, enough control of, of your understanding of who you are so that you can go, I know which activities invigorate me and which drain me. And I will deliberately try to push my job or my life toward those that invigorate me. I will try to make my job a reflection of the best of me. I'm not saying that's easy, but that's the approach that you have to take. Most everyone in this room has gotten off track, not because the why was wrong, not because the who is wrong, but because the what is wrong. What you're actually doing has come to taint your job and question your motives and question the people around you.